The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I am your host today, and I have the pleasure of uh, welcoming into the studio by phone one of our new distance students, Mr. Zach Dotson. Zach, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on the program. It's a, it's a real privilege. Absolutely, brother. It's a privilege to have you as a, uh, as a fellow classmate here at the seminary, and I'm thankful for your ministry. Uh, those of our listeners who don't know, Zach is uh, serving in a pulpit supply capacity at a Reformed Presbyterian Church congregation in New York, and he can tell us a little bit about that church in a bit. But what we're going to do today is we're going to have a brief discussion about Zach's choice to attend Greenville Seminary and his experience so far now that he's uh, more than a semester deep into his studies with us. Zach, first things first, how did you hear about Greenville Seminary? To be fair, I had uh, I attended Presbyterian College for two years, or two and a half years, and I, I was actually attending uh, Greenville Presbyterian Church, which is uh, the church where Rob McCurley preaches at. And I knew that Greenville existed. I knew Peter Van Dudward quite well. In fact, Peter Van Dudward was the pastor of the Covenant OPC or Covenant Community OPC there in Taylor's was instrumental in my conversion uh, while I was at Presbyterian College. But um, money was tight. Presbyterian College was expensive. So I went back uh, to the University of Virginia's college at Wise and finished out my degree. And it was far cheaper than Presbyterian College. And so when I, when I finished out my studies, I knew I wanted to enter the ministry and um, I thought about all the places I could go, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a confession because I had gone to uh, the Free Church, and because I'd lived down in in Lawrence County, I felt like Greenville was sort of home turf, and I wanted to make my way out. So I actually chose to go to another seminary. I want to give some background to some of our listeners. Presbyterian College is in nearby Clinton, right? Yeah, I guess down there they would say Clinton, yeah. Yeah, so it's spelled Clinton, but uh, it's pronounced Clinton down in South Carolina. So Presbyterian College is nearby. Greenville Presbyterian Church and Covenant Community OPC are on the same street as the seminary currently. Both Rob McCurley and Peter Van Dudeward the pastors of those two congregations, respectively, are graduates of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. So those of you who are familiar with us would have recognized all of that. If you're new to the podcast or you're not as familiar with our immediate community here in Greenville, then hopefully some of those references are now demystified for you. Now, Zach, you said you enrolled at uh, another seminary, and yet you're a student of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary today. What caused that move? Why did you transfer into our program? The reason why I chose to transfer to uh, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary was the other seminary I was attending left me a bit underwhelmed. Um, I felt like there was not an in-depth focus on Reformed Orthodoxy or Historic Reformed Orthodoxy 
I felt as if the confession was not being taken as seriously as it ought to be. And I, I in my heart, uh, am, am an old-school Presbyterian. Um, I suppose, since I'm an RP, I should say I'm an old light covenanter. But uh, what appealed to me about Greenville was, was really, I guess we could say, three things. One, confessionalism. Two, an affinity for old-school Presbyterianism. And three, uh, practical and experimental piety. And so those three things really drew me to Greenville. Now, as a distance student, have you, do you think that, you know, this first semester and a half so far, uh, the seminaries lived up to your expectations in terms of promoting these three things that you've mentioned, old school Presbyterianism, confessionalism, and uh, the cultivation of a rich biblical piety? So I would say that uh, the person who, in my mind, is kind of the four forefront of cultivating old school Presbyterianism is is Dr. Wilborn. And so when I took a class with him, yeah, absolutely. Uh it was it was what I was expecting it to be. Uh as far as the confessionalism and piety goes, I mean the the professors are very careful, very uh, methodical in in how they explain things. They explain things in light of the the confessional standards which all Presbyterians should hold to. And I, I guess what they try to do, and they they try to make practical application of all of these things to the life of a student. And, and one of the classes I took, which at my other seminary, this sort of class was not even on the radar, was um, Reformed Spirituality with Dr. McGraw. And basically, Dr. McGraw taught us about everything from you know your personal kind of private worship, private devotions to family worship, all, all the way up to uh, kind of pastoral scenarios, managing our our health, as as well as some financial kind of practical financial things. Um, and and we read we read Hen, is it Henry Scudder's uh, The Christian's Daily Walk, which. I had read sometime before that class, and it's absolutely tremendous work. Of course, Scudder was a Westminster divine, and he wrote this book on the Christian life and practical piety. So here I was at a seminary wanting to be old-school Presbyterian, or the the seminary claimed itself to be confessional old-school Presbyterian, and it kind of carried through when sort of the, the manual I was handed on practical Christianity was written by a man who had assisted and was a voting part of, of drafting the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. So I, I thought that was, was really fitting. Um, I very much enjoyed it. I also, uh, rhetoric, uh, took a rhetoric class. That was a lot of fun. I really learned to, to love Professor Cook. Uh, although there was, there was points in that class where we were asked to give a speech and um, mine was defending six-day creation. And so I kind of targeted my audience, and I, I quoted a commentary from the ARP in the 18th century and from Dr. Girardot. I quoted Dr. Girardot against, uh, I guess it would have been Woodrow at Columbia. And uh, they, they thought, they asked me at the end of the speech if uh, Benjamin Warfield was in heaven, so... 
that was that was a little dicey, but uh, that was that was a good that was a good time. Um, I, I enjoyed giving that speech, um, and uh, the rhetoric class was great. I mean, we were having to to methodically and sort of philosophically think about how we communicate, and we were you know we were discouraged from empty rhetoric and and being sophist. And we were encouraged, really, to think about how to communicate to a local congregation. Uh, so that was that was really good. And then now, of course, logic logic is a, is a blast. Um, Old Testament classes. There's a lot of reading, but those are those are very good. I I really have no no complaints about anything I've I've done so far with the seminary. It's it's lived up to my expectation in in every way. I mean, I really love the the fact that the professors care about their students as well. Um, at my previous seminary, we had some TAs for classes. The professors were not overly involved, but at, at Greenville, what's nice is is you know Dr. Dyer who teaches Greek. Men will be sent out, you know, into the field of labor, into the ministry, and they will email or phone him, and he will answer their questions on uh, a Greek word or um, doing something with the Greek language or even textual variants. He's he's happy to assist in all these things, and I I greatly admire that. That is a great uh, advantage of being a Greenville Seminary student, you are part of a what Rick Phillips calls a fraternity of holy men pursuing the ministry. And as of yet, that fraternity is still uh, is still relatively intimate in terms of its quantity. And so each of the professors get to know each of the students who go through the entire program quite well. And like you said, our faculty are enthusiastic about continuing to be a resource to our graduates or to just any former student of the seminary, and Dr. Dyer in particular has a huge heart for helping men to continue to be in the Greek after they graduate, because it is too common an occurrence for seminary graduates of any seminary to spend a couple of years in Greek and Hebrew and then to graduate and never look at it again. And though you can certainly preach God's word faithfully from just an English translation, uh, it is uh, the perspicuity of Scripture does... Um, does grant us that ability. It is. It it really is a great advantage to men to have a solid and continuing grasp of Greek and Hebrew after seminary, as they're preparing their sermons. And so that that plays into our emphasis on equipping men to preach. Now, Zach, you you've you've illustrated a few things, probably unintentionally, and you're giving an account of your experience of Greenville so far. Uh, though you're a transfer in, you've taken a bunch of first year classes, including logic, rhetoric, intro to um, or not intro to reform theology, but uh, reform spirituality, and also the Presbyterian Church history. And what's unique about Greenville is that in these classes, you have referenced many figures from Presbyterian history, including Giroudot and Scudder and, and, and others. Now, let's, let's take a step back and remind our listeners, or even just straight up introduce our listeners, to some of the terms and individuals that you've referenced. First is old school Presbyterianism and its, um, its RP corollary, Old Light Covenanter uh, designation. What do those terms mean? So um, really what you're going to have in the 
1830s through the 1840s is you're going to have a global uh, reformed phenomenon. It's going to go from the Netherlands to Scotland to the United States where uh, Calvinism is has been, uh, due to influences of the Enlightenment, uh, sort of watered down. And in the, in the early 19th century, there's sort of a, a rediscovery and perhaps not as much of a rediscovery as a reassertion of Calvinistic truth. And so what you have occurring in the mainline Presbyterian Church in the United States is in 1837, the old school and the new school split apart. And this is primarily due to Hopskinianism and a, and a governmental and universal view of the atonement. And I could unpack that, but there's really no need to. But the point is, is you have a phenomenon that's really um, worldwide where every church is going to split apart. Now, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, the thing that was going to drive our denomination apart was actually um, political involvement. We have a, a long tension over how we'd ought to express ourselves ap appropriately in the political arena. And so it was, I think what it came down to was a question over jury duty was a, was a big push, but even a more important push, I think in the Reformed Presbyterian Church kind of lurking in the background was really confessional subscription. And the, the new lights of the Reformed Presbyterian Church are, are now actually part of the PCA. They were, in the, they were the RPCES that merged in to the PCA whenever that happened. But the, the key thing to recognize, I guess, is you have it in 1834 with Hendrik de Kock in the Netherlands, 1837 with Old School, New School. Old Light, New Light was 1833. And you're going to have it um, in 1843 with the Free Church separating from the Church of Scotland. So you're going to have this sort of phenomenon of um, Calvinism being reasserted, met with opposition, and then unfortunately church splits occurring. We cherish our Presbyterian heritage and all of its uh, various expressions, at least the biblical Presbyterian heritage. We could say we cherish and uh, sadly, controversy and division usually attends uh, much of Presbyterian history. But what is always encouraging in these controversies and in these divisions is that you see a remnant being preserved in every generation of a faithful, uh, biblical, and what we would call Presbyterian witness ever since the apostolic church age. And so we celebrate that, and we seek to really instruct our students in in that, and I know Zach and I both have um, garnered much benefit from our faculty's instruction being grounded in the Presbyterian tradition broadly. Now, Zach, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about you. We've talked about the seminary a whole lot. Tell our listeners a bit about your current uh, ministry and your service to Christ's Church there in New York. Tell us about the congregation that you're serving, and in terms of pulpit supply, what that means, and what the future holds for you as you continue your studies. So I am, I guess, technically the intern of Coldenham Newburgh Reformed Presbyterian Church, and one of the distinctives of this congregation 
is our age. Uh, we were, I guess we became a congregation, we were organized August the 10th of 1798. Which, there, there's a few churches in the PCA, I believe, who have similar uh, dates. And there's a couple other older RP churches as well. But really, um, most Reformed churches in this country are, are not as old as we are. So we have kind of something going there. But as the intern, I what I actually do is I, I do it all. I'm kind of a jack of all trades. So I preach twice on the Lord's Day. I typically will teach adult Sabbath school. And I do all the pastoral visiting on top of a full-time course load at GPTS. And how many elders do you have there that are serving alongside of you or that you are supporting? So I have a, because our congregation is very weak, I have one ruling elder on the ground, and then I have a provisional session appointed by the presbytery. So really, kind of day-to-day, it's myself and a ruling elder. My ruling elder has been very supportive. He proctors any test I need to have proctored. Um, He... I guess, supplies information to the seminary when it's required. So, for example, in logic, our homework is due at the end of the semester, and he, my ruling elder is going to be the one to say, hey, he did the homework and send that on to the professor. So that that's how that kind of works. My provisional elders are here about once a month, or I do meet with them about once a month. And I send up every two weeks a report of kind of like, hey, this is what's going on for me and this is what's going on on the ground. And I should mention also, I lead a Bible study in my manse every Wednesday night that starts at 730 and I'm lucky if I can get the people out of the door by 10. I guess now would be an appropriate time to do this. Can you tell us about uh, one of your predecessors at the church. I know you're not called as the pastor right now. You're doing pulpit supply, but tell us a little bit about um, at least one of the more notable uh, men who has filled that pulpit over a period of time. I think you know who I'm referring to. There's two particularly notable men, so I'm going to ask, is it McLeod or Wilson that you're inquiring after? Well, I'm referencing Wilson because of the stern uh, visage that graces the cover of one of his books. But you could tell us about McLeod as well. You could tell us about both of these guys. So I'll, I'll start with McLeod. McLeod was only here for a short period of time. He was called to be the pastor, I believe, in 1800, and he initially declined the call because he had a, a he detested slavery, and there was people in the congregation that owned slaves. So in turn, um, the congregation fle- uh, freed their slaves. The Presbytery, the Reformed Presbytery, uh, made it uh, kind of the law of the church that you could not be a member if you owned slaves, and that was that. And he was here from 1801 to 1803, and he split time between us and New York City. Now, we're about 60 miles up the Hudson River from New York City. Well, as as these things so often happen, um, New York City was a bigger field, and he was quite an accomplished preacher. So he went down to New York City and preached, and one of the cool things about Alexander McLeod is 
he was offered the presidency of Princeton twice and declined it both times. So um, he was offered the vice presidency the first time with the idea that it might have been, I think it would have been later than Witherspoon, um, but whoever was there at the time was kind of, I think, in failing health, and they offered him the vice presidency that the understanding when this man who was as president was no longer able to continue, and he declined that. And I believe the board floated his name a second time and said, you know, if you want to go down this road, we can go down this road, and he declined both times. Well, he's wise, or he was wise to have done that because uh, in those early years of Princeton, it seemed like anyone who stepped into the presidency, um, you know, his days were numbered. I mean, it's like so so many of those <laughs> yeah. presidents just croaked uh, right at, well I mean I guess um, Witherspoon was the exception to the rule but um, many of the others took a hardy Scotsman to be able to survive the presidency of Princeton in the 18th and 19th century so we've talked about Alexander McLeod tell us now about uh, Reverend Wilson so I mean you, you referenced the work political danger that has a, a photo of, of an elderly James Rennick Wilson absolutely uh, kind of scowling on the cover of it and uh James Rennick Wilson was really an animal of of a man. Um, He was a very gifted preacher, and he was a very gifted uh, writer as well. In fact, until the 1990s when Turretin's Institutes were translated out of Hodge's Latin manuscript, or forgive me, were translated from and edited from Hodge's English manuscript of them and published, uh, James Rennick Wilson was the man who published the most Francis Turretin in English. And he did that in his sketch on the atonement, where he translated Turretin's work on the atonement and published it. Um, Wilson was an interesting character because he he had some sort of, of mental problem that precluded him at first from taking a call and he got it under control enough to where he could take a call, and he was called here to Coldenham to be the pastor in 1817. And Wilson would struggle throughout his life with this, and basically what would happen with James Rennick Wilson is he would, uh, he would go through periods of extreme work. He would... He would spend hours a day in prayer. He would stay up till 2 or 3 in the morning writing and studying. And then he would go through periods of, of depression and sort of lethargy where he was getting very little done. And and these would, I, I think, if I understand it correctly, these would run in, in about two to three-week bouts back and forth. Um, so it definitely took a, a toll on him. Now, Rennick Wilson is probably most noted because for a brief period, he took the pastorate up in Albany, New York, and had the privilege of praying routinely as a chaplain for the state legislature, praying before those men. And, and Rennick Wilson, his strategy, or his, his, I guess, modus operandi with the um, with the, the legislature was he knew that there was a lot of deists and he knew a lot of them were drunkards and, and were uh, seeing women of ill repute and having affairs and that sort of thing. So he would very boldly pray against these things in his prayers. And he ended up publishing a sermon 
I think it was tokens of divine displeasure. And in that sermon, he basically dressed down the New York legislature. And what ended up happening was a mob assembled. He had to flee from Albany. All the copies of the sermon that could be found in Albany were burned. And on top of that pile was a a, uh, effigy of James Rennick Wilson. And he fled from Albany... And he came back down to Coldenham. Now, what most people don't realize is Coldenham today in Orange County, New York, is a pretty um, pretty rural spot. But in the 1800s, Coldenham was the seat of the lieutenant governor of New York. So he really jumped from one frying pan into another. And... So that, that, was, that was James Rennick Wilson. I mean, he was really a man that could not be stopped. Um, and as a, as a preacher, he's, he's very well noted. Um, and, and one of the things he did, which is interesting, and this is in his book, is he wrote to Andrew Jackson on behalf of uh, Cherokee Indian Affairs. He supported the Indians being evangelized. And Andrew Jackson seems to have had some regard for Rennick Wilson, actually, and and respected him. And I I think he was a man very much worthy of respect. And the the last cool thing I can say about James Rennick Wilson is Coldenham is, I guess, about six miles to the west of Newburgh, New York. And Newburgh was really noted as a very deistic city. And James Rennick Wilson managed to reform Newburgh. He managed to get the ARP churches that were in Newburgh, um, which there was a couple of them. He managed to get the, I think, mainline Presbyterians as well as the Dutch Reformed, if I understand it correctly, to all hold fast day services and kind of a revival broke out. And James Rennick Wilson used to go preach in Newburgh and he would preach this divine wrath and judgment on the deist. And so the story goes that a bunch of these old deists started dying, and they were having horrible deathbed scenes. And, and that's what the account says. What horrible deathbed scenes are, I'm not going to pretend to know. But anyway, it, it won James Rennick Wilson credibility, and for a time, he kind of got uh, Newburgh, New York in line. That is quite a testimony and quite a ministry that uh, that you're following, even though we're talking about 200 years ago. Um, and I'm sure in the interim, between James Rennick Wilson and Mr. Zach Dotson preaching in that pulpit, much has transpired there in the congregation. And uh, you said right now the congregation, generally speaking, is weak. Do you mean in terms of numbers? So on an average Lord's Day morning, if you come to Coldenham, you would find between 18 and 23 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, compared to where we were in the 1800s, we are quite weak. Um, and and the congregation is aging. Now, we are seeing some growth, and we are thankful for that. But, yeah, we are, um, we are not the strongest of congregations at present. And actually, around 1920, this congregation was reduced to six members, and it almost closed, except the members refused to dissolve the congregation. So Good for them. So is your ultimate aim, Zach, once you've finished your MDiv and you're able to sit for ordination exams and everything, is your aim to remain there 
um, at Coltenham and to minister and labor as an ordained minister of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America. So now, now you're asking the, the really difficult question. Um, my desire would be, because Greenville has a wonderful distance program, would be to come down to Greenville for intensive courses if I can keep my grades pretty steady and, and time is not an issue to continue to do distance during the semester and preach and, and teach. Um, I have my first round of licensure exams in, in March. So in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, kind of an oddity of the Book of Church Order is a student for the ministry can be appointed by a local session to be uh, a pulpit supply or an intern for an ex- extended duration. So I'm operating under those auspices at the moment. I have my first, we do, uh, we have five licensure exams, and so I have my first round in March, and I'll have my second round in October, and then I'll be licensed to preach, and then um, probably in the next year or two, I will come forward to be made eligible for a call. And um, it's certainly my hope for the foreseeable future to remain at Coldenham and to continue to see what the Lord will uh, will do here. Certainly, we are seeing more visitors, and we're seeing a lot of positive uh, growth. And I, I think really, you know, to kind of deflect, it's really up to the people of Coldenham what they're going to do. I work on a, on a six-month contract, so my contract is up July 1, so if they if they wish not to continue for whatever reason, then I'll be moving to Greenville. And if they want to continue and my grades are good and I feel like I can continue to kind of uh, focus the same output, then I will, uh, I will stay put. It, it's all in the Lord's hands, but we've seen a lot, of, a lot of good things happen over, I guess, the eight months that I've been here so far. Oh, we praise the Lord for that. And those of you who are familiar with our seminary and our student body— know that while men study here, while we're studying, we are actively involved in local congregations all over the country and even around the world through our distance program. And our resident students, myself included, are very, very actively involved in local congregations here in the upstate, of which there are many, including the two that Zach mentioned earlier, Greenville Presbyterian Church and Covenant Community, OPC, right down the road. Um, But What's what's always been an emphasis in what I would say Southern Presbyterian seminaries, and by that I just mean geographically, seminaries that are Presbyterian and in the South, so Greenville, uh, Old Columbia, um, even Reformed Theological Seminary is— and oh yeah 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 you're right yeah Union in Virginia I'm just not as familiar with the student life of Union in Virginia in the 19th century but sure we can lump them together or lump uh, Union in with the other ones is an emphasis not just on gaining the knowledge that's required for ministry and 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 being equipped for ministry but and this is in distinction to Princeton and uh, at least historically Westminster back in the day we emphasize the involvement of students in local congregations and in um, Christian service, and even to the to the point of, of stepping into pulpit supply situations while they're still uh, finishing out their seminary education or even receiving calls before they graduate if they're able to pass the exams. Of course, 
we want everyone to graduate and we don't want men to drop out of the program, even in those situations. And generally our men do graduate with MDivs, but, uh, but our, what we conceive of our role as is to supply the church with men equipped for the ministry. And that is just as true of the men who are currently enrolled as it is uh, true for the men that graduate from here. And Zach, have you, have you felt that encouragement in, in your own studies or has that come up at all yet? I'll tell you one of the times I was most encouraged was, was in the American Presbyterian history class. And, uh, Dr. Wilborn will not let us stay in the classroom for a whole week, which I didn't mind the tour, but he obviously loves going to all of these historical sites. And we went to the grave of James Henley Thornwell and John L. Girardot, which is in Elmwood Cemetery in Columbia. It's about probably, probably do it in an hour and a half, two max from the seminary. And uh, beside... Thornwell's grave, and kind of across from Gerardo's grave, there is a very small headstone. And that headstone uh, belonged to a, a man by the name of George Whitfield Ladson. And George Whitfield Ladson died as a student for the ministry. And the people that he ministered to, which were actually mostly, I think, um, free African-Americans, those of mixed race, and prostitutes in Colombia. Those who he ministered to um, bought him a plot next to Dr. Thornwell because he revered Dr. Thornwell so much. And so that was, that was quite a, a confirming experience uh, for what I was doing, and it was a really special moment to see the grave of this man. And it's interesting because his tombstone is so small and it's it's starting to get covered over with moss and I think Dr. Wilborn wants to go down there and and clean it but you know that that certainly to me kind of spoke to the spirit of ministry here was this student of theology who saw the need and he he basically took hold of it and began preaching and teaching these people and it was blessed, and he passed away very young before he was ordained. And and they the, that group of people that he was ministering to, they bought him a plot right next to Thornwell. So that was that was a, that was probably one of my favorite things. Of that whole tour was seeing the headstone of George Whitfield Ladson. That is an incredible tour too. The time in Columbia and the time down in the Low Country in Charleston, and that is a class that we open up to the public. We do it every winter. Dr. Wilborn comes down from his pulpit in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. They free him up for a week. to uh, They let us borrow him so that he can provide three days classroom instruction and two days in the field, as it were, um, conducting that tour. And it's a Presbyterian church history class. He does seek to cover uh, just the broad progression of, uh, of the Presbyterian church from the Reformation forward. And... Um, and he also gives that same tour, or at least a very similar tour, uh, as part of his Southern Presbyterian um, theology, history and theology course that he does in the summers. And I'm hoping I'm going to be able to audit that one this summer. I don't need to take it for credit because I've already fulfilled my elective credits, but I'm hoping to audit it because the students here who have taken it said that it is just a fantastic course. What he assigns as a, for reading and everything is, is really worthwhile. I mean... Um... 
I, I hope to take it probably for credit this summer. Um, I'm supposed to be married at some point. My fiance is Canadian, so we're waiting on a visa. So if uh, if it doesn't happen where I take it this summer, it's because I'm getting married. Kind of a big deal. But um, I, I was trying to convince Dr. Wilborn to extend the tour. And I, I kind of want to get a movement going on this where the tour actually concludes at Midway Congregational Church down in Liberty County, Georgia. Well, yeah, if we extended it down into Georgia, there's all kinds of stuff we could do. I mean, it could very easily become a, a three, three-and-a-half-day tour. Um, there, you know, being from Philadelphia myself, I was not prepared for all of the, um, all of the historical relevance of South Carolina and the Southeast, you know, being from Philly, you grow up being told, especially in public school that, you know, everything happened in Philadelphia. It was Philadelphia and Boston, a little bit in New York. And we forget that there is just as much rich history here in the American South and particularly in the Southeast. And what I've learned being at Greenville Seminary so far is that Presbyterian church history is really, really rich down here. And, of course, there are some, you know, lamentable, uh, sinful aspects of that, like chattel slavery and uh, segregation. But there's a lot to be commended and a lot to study and to enjoy as well, and especially as we think about the ministry that, that men like George Whitfield Ladson had uh, to to those who were of the, the you know, the poorest estate um, in a very difficult time in American history. Uh, there's much to be appreciated here. And we try to highlight that at Greenville Seminary. Well, it's, that's true. Um, it is. Greenville is, is really a great school. And um, if anybody is thinking about going to Greenville, I would say the best thing you could do is audit American Presbyterian Church history or Southern Southern Presbyterianism, the class that's kind of a mix of theology and church history. We can call it historical theology. Audit one of those classes, go on the tour, and that is just, that's that's a really worthwhile uh, thing to do. Um, of course, you know, for me, it, it was interesting because where I am in New York, I'm in a historic Presbyterian enclave, so um, we have a graduate noted preacher in the Great Awakening John Blair, he's buried just six miles up the road. Uh, the Erskine, there's two Erskine seminaries. I don't know. I told uh, Professor Cook about this. Of course, he's working down at Erskine now. And I said, um, I said, hey, one day in class, I said, hey, I'm I'm eight miles from Erskine. He said, really? And I said, yeah, Erskine Seminary in Newburgh, New York. And <laughs> he got a he got a laugh out of that, but. Where I am was was kind of an enclave of, of Presbyterianism, and so there's a lot of history here too. But just to go on that tour and to hear all about it, it was very, very special. And, you know, if there was anything that I, I was disappointed by in American Presbyterian Church history, it was the fact that I did not have time to hunt down the grave in Second Presbyterian Church of John Bailey Adger. That uh, that kind of upset me. But 
anyway. Yeah, John Bailey Adger was a noteworthy Southern Presbyterian in the middle of the 19th century who was passionate for missions and also for evangelizing slaves. And, um, and then after the war, evangelizing freedmen. And he was a partner with, uh, with Smythe and with Girardot in Charleston. But he also spent 10 years in Armenia, or at least ministering to Armenians in Smyrna, in what is now you know, modern-day Turkey. And he has a, an, an autobiography that is a delight to read. Of course, he's a man of his times, so some of what he says would make you blush. And uh, and we can recognize was you know born out of some presuppositions that we don't generally hold to today, or at least we shouldn't. But he um, is is worth reading, worth looking into. He's professor of church history and ecclesiology at Columbia Theological Seminary, and uh, was recognized as a great man and an eminent pastor and scholar. And in fact, is responsible for the first modern translation of the Bible into Armenian, into modern Armenian. Since I'm of Armenian descent, I'm always interested in, in anything like that, and especially in relation to Reformed and Presbyterian churches. But John Bailey Adger is definitely uh, somebody of note and worth mentioning, especially in light of our previous conversation. It would be good to add his grave to the tour. You're right. Well, his, the, the problem was the, the grave is right there. Um, just we were pressed for time, and so I I kind of snuck away from the group, and I was hunting the grave, and I couldn't find it. And then Doctor Wilborn just kind of cried out, you know, if you're not here, we're going to leave you. So I had to get on. <laughs> so it it was uh, it's right there if you can find it in the churchyard of Second Presbyterian Church in uh, in Charleston. But just hearing. Dr. Wilborn talk about men like the first Presbyterian missionary or first Presbyterian minister really in South Carolina, Archibald Stobo, to hear him talk about Samuel Davies, it it really just uh, makes me desire to, uh, to, to kind of learn more about these men and, and learn what they did. And if people want to know more about these men, when I have free time, which is increasingly becoming very seldom, especially since I have a Greek midterm next week, um, if you, I, I do some work for Log College Press, and maybe I'll let Zach introduce what Log College Press does, and then I can maybe talk a bit more about it. That, I think, is a worthwhile topic for a discussion. Um, Log, Log College Press... Uh, from what I understand, is really the labor of love of Caleb Kangalosi and Zach Dotson and a number of other men around the country who have um, a great appreciation for 19th century and particularly old school Presbyterianism and uh, and old light covenanters and, and just um, solid biblical Presbyterianism. And what they've done is they're digitizing and and circulating and then in some cases even printing uh, republications, if I can use that word, of, of literature that has its source in 19th century uh, Presbyterianism. And I think today in my email, I got the daily update, they just made available uh, 600 pages of, of, um, of works from Francis Grimke. It's his, uh, what would they call it? 
basically a collection of of his thoughts and reflections that he's written. And Francis Grimke was a uh, a, a notable a 19th century um, black Presbyterian pastor in, uh, in I think in the north. And he's always worth reading as well. So Log, Log College Press is uh, is really valuable. What I appreciate about these brothers is um, you know they recognize the weaknesses of our forefathers in the Presbyterian faith, but they also recognize that there is so much that is worthwhile and worthy of, of publication and circulation today. I mean, they've, they've made available Dabney's discussions as well and uh, works by Thornwell and Giroudot that up until recently were very, very difficult to get a hold of, either digitally or in print, especially in print. So... I commend their work. We're promoting it here at the seminary among our students. I think our librarian might be purchasing some of the booklets that Log College Press is publishing, and I'm excited to see what the Lord will do uh, with um, through these efforts. Zach, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, so um, basically, I, I wish I was more in the loop than I I am at the moment just due to course load and other work, but... I've got stuff that I need to to throw on up there, but eventually, uh, this is what I can say, within the next few weeks, I will be hopefully adding to the website the works of some prominent uh, Presbyterian pastors from South Carolina that are are relatively unknown, Um, and and my main work, I I should clarify this as well, I do mostly ARP and associate church stuff. Uh, that's kind of my specialty is the associate church. Um, I'm, the RPCNA merged with the associate church in 1968, so I can kind of lay claim to it that way. There's another guy, Andrew Myers, and he does most of the RP stuff. He's very familiar with it. Actually, Andrew Myers, really, he's he's the guy who makes things go there. Um I can't I can't thank him enough because he knows basically every work, whether it be mainline, whether it be Covenanter, and even going into the ARP and Associates. He knows what was out there, and he ensures that if we can get a copy of it, that it's put on the website. Now Caleb is he's the brains behind the operation, and so we we owe a debt to him in in him kind of spearheading it and there's there's a number of other men there there's people that do kind of the archival work which is what andrew and i mostly deal with there's people that are working with him on the publishing side of things but what we want to be at log college press is we do want to put old books back into publication and also we want to have a centralized archive of american presbyterianism uh, on the internet and uh, you mentioned specifically 19th century stuff. We're really working harder to get into the 18th century. Unfortunately, those works are, due to age, far more difficult to, to get. But we are, we are trying to do as much as we can. So if you go on the Log College Press website into our library, you will find works from... Every one we've mentioned, with the exception of Archibald Stobo, and that's because I don't know that he published anything. And I've looked for anything he has published, and we haven't found it. But certainly, 
You could read uh, sermons that were published by John Bailey Adger. You can read basically everything I think Gerardo published for free online there. Um, James Rennick Wilson, Alexander McLeod, all their stuff is there with the exception of a few unpublished things of James Rennick Wilson. So it's all accessible. So if you want to read it, it's there, free to read. Yeah, I'm looking at the website now, logcollegepress.com, L-O-G-C-O-L-L-E-G-E Press. Dot com And one of the things they have on here, in addition to all the primary sources, if you go to their bookstore tab, you see three of the publications that they have. They've also provided a list, uh, um, a clickable you know, list of all these secondary sources on Presbyterian history. It is rather extensive. I mean, this would be uh, a great bibliography for an independent study through Presbyterian history from all kinds of uh, both the mainline tradition and also more orthodox traditions. So it's really worth your time, worth a looking into if you're at all interested in Presbyterian history. Zach, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me. We're glad that you're here as a student, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the Lord blesses your congregation there in New York. We're going to continue to pray for that work and that the Lord would build his church and and particularly bring you more officers and then hopefully in due time extend to you a call. That's that's certainly our hope and and I just I cannot thank uh Greenville Seminary enough for really the opportunities it extends to students and if there's one last thing I could say about the seminary one of the most wonderful things is is that we are, I guess as Dr. Phillips has stated, uh, a, a fraternity of men pursuing the holy ministry, but also we're very international. Um, when I, I've been at Greenville on campus numerous times, I, I know that I have students studying with me from Nigeria, Brazil, and then all over the United States, Canada, and the U.K., and that's that's what I know about offhand. And so that's that's really tremendous. Thank you, Zach. And all that you've said is true. We have a unique for our size, we have a uniquely broad representation of 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 countries in our student body. Especially when you consider how big our total student body is. Um we have about a hundred a little bit more than 100 students in our student body. I think um, about 78 or 80 of them are actually enrolled in classes this semester. You know, some men take a break here and there. And then, uh, but out of that, you know, at least 10, at least 10 or 20% of our student body come from abroad. And, um, and Greenville Seminary has been able to be a great blessing to the global church as a result. And those of you who know Dr. Curdo and Dr. Piper, who um, have known Dr. Smith, know that we have a heart for international missions and for the Presbyterian Church in other countries. So you're not surprised that we have um, many, many foreign students here at the seminary. And, you know, it's a very ecumenical work as well, at least within solid Reformed denominations. We have a fairly broad representation uh, on our board and in our student body. So, Zach, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your warm, encouraging words about the seminary. And again, we are excited about what the Lord is doing here and looking forward to what he will continue to do, both here at the seminary and at your church and in your life. Thanks so much. Thank you, Zach. Bye-bye. Bye.
You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.